Three, two, one. Welcome back to the Midcoast Main Podcast. My name is John Spera. This week, uh, Pete Kalajian is with us. Uh, Pete, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. You, uh, last interaction we had, you told me you were uh, retiring or retired. I have retired from teaching, yes. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. How long did you teach? Well, in I would say I started teaching uh, when I was... Mm, 22. Okay. And I'm 60 now. So. Okay. Wow. So you spent your whole lifetime teaching. Pretty much. Yeah. Now I know you taught at Watershed. Yeah. we taught at Watershed for 17 years. And where else did you teach? Well, I taught uh, mostly in the outdoor education realm. I uh, was an outward bound instructor. And then I uh, worked on sail training vessels. I was a captain, a faculty captain for the Sea Education Association for seven years. Now, where is that located? In Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Okay. Sea Education. Yes. So we had uh, 135 foot steel sailing research vessels. And we did a college semester, six weeks uh, on shore preparing them to go to sea, and then six weeks at sea doing oceanographic research. That's amazing. Yeah, it was fun. So uh, your background is in what area in terms of your own education? My own education was as an electrical engineer. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Really? Mm -hmm. So you have a super sharp mind. I mean, a science-oriented mind. That's Well, I have a science-oriented mind. How sharp it is. Well, I think it's sharp. (laughs) I mean, that's one of the reasons I asked you on the podcast. I mean, I've I've always found you to be just so, you know, clear um, and precise in your style of speaking, your argument, your... um, I don't know, way of holding uh, yourself. And uh, it's something I was always impressed with. So well, it was one thank of, you. well, it's just one of the reasons I want, you know, wanted to, you know, talk to you. And I was interested too, you know, as you told me you were retired from teaching, um, you know, looking back your career, obviously in many different areas, but I mean, watershed for quite a while. Right. Um, was founding founding faculty member of watershed so that's a huge to me loss for the school in a way or transition for the school well yeah transition but loss uh, you know you never know right (laughs) (laughs) i I think that by the end i was starting to be less effective okay and um so when you when you're when you get tired and and you know done something for a long time it's harder to be you know to it's harder to put in good work. How were you measuring effectiveness in terms of um, teaching or, or your your presence there? Uh, I would say ability to um, reach and you know sort of get through to students in mm-hmm. a way that is somewhat intangible, yeah. but yet is um, you know it seems over time. Uh, for whatever reason, I felt like I was becoming less and less effective as an educator. You were so straightforward with students, at least in the interactions that I saw, limited interactions that yeah. I saw. You were so straightforward with them in, in terms of your, not only your expectations, but, you know, in, in getting ideas across to them. And I always found that impressive. You know, there was no um, veneer. There was no, you were very certain about what you were trying to accomplish with them. Right. And so the, you know, when you have that kind of certainty of what you're trying to get across, if the if the others on the student side, they 
you know, they hear your clear message and that resonates with them, then it can be very effective. Yeah. Um, but if they hear your message very clearly and it doesn't resonate, then it's difficult to make any progress. Did you find that, um, resonance uh, in the student to be changing or was it just sort of hit or miss depending on who, you know what kind of student you had yeah that's hard to say right because at a small school like watershed yeah it you know you could you can make um inferences from a particular class of six or eight sure that are um you know one of the things that i learned when i was at sea doing oceanographic research is that um, in the ocean, everything is patchy, hmm. right? So, mean? so that means that if you measure, say, how many animals or are of a particular species are in your net toe that you just did, and then you did another one in the exact same place, you would get a completely different number because that particular patch of animals might have moved. And so, to make inferences about a larger trend in the world from a very small sample size is difficult to do but i would say that there there has been a shift in um teenagers in general and i think that i'm not alone in 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 identifying the the, the shift M many of my colleagues at the public schools or in other private schools have said that over the course of the last decade or so um lessons and and activities that were were successful in the past haven't been as successful and so that that everybody's had to modify a little bit how they teach and um and why why that might be i i i have some conjectures but i'm you know it's hard to say so you're you're seeing um over a 17 or 20 year period you know give or take but uh you're seeing a, a generational shift, right? I mean, I think so. Yeah, I think so. And that, uh, I remember, you know, when I was moonlighting over there for a little while, I remember the topic of one of the topics of conversation was the use of technology inside the classroom in terms of as being a distraction, um, you know, for the students. And I don't just mean like a present distraction as though they're playing video games on their computers. Although I'm sure that's a, you know, small battle, but yeah, in terms of, um, it occupying their mind space, things like social media kind of, um, always present, even if it's not on, you know, it's kind of a, it's another influence or it's another thing in the, you know, in the minds of the, of the students. Sure. Sure. Um, I mean, I think that the thing that I have sort of the story that I tell myself, which is may or may not bear any relationship to reality is that the combination of you know the access to information of all stripes right and the um the very clear um message and also just lived reality of climate change is one that is effectively working towards nihilism in teenagers. Okay. So let's com combine those two things. So, yeah. um, everything's available on the internet for free all the time. Everything. Sure. Um, and so you can have information overload. 
Yeah. Um, you can also have not just information overload, but by the, but the potential of information overload. Like I know that at any given moment, even without doing research, I could find anything about everything about anybody from all of history. Pretty much. And I mean, anything that's been written or documented in some way. And, uh, and so that sheer potentiality, uh, in the face of that, right. It might make me a great researcher or it might sort of stupefy me and keep me from doing anything. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I think it's more, I think that, that the climate change is, uh, is a, I think it's such a daunting prospect. It's so, you know, when you take a stable 11,000 year stable climate, and all of a sudden, it starts to rapidly shift. Um, I mean, human civilization in its modern incarnation, and when I say modern, I mean in the last 11,000 years, yeah. um, agricultural, you know, basically agricultural practices are the same now as they were 11,000 years ago in many ways. You're planting the same crops, more or less, you're... You're, you have a pretty good idea of what your growing season looks like. You, you've established, um, you know, tradition about how to do things and you've ordered your society in such a way that because um, if you have a stable climate, then uh, ordering yourself around what worked, which is another way of saying tradition, right? Tradition is people have adopted the idea of of tradition as a way of um, protecting themselves from, um, you know, if what worked before worked, then it should work again. And therefore let's be careful of making changes because that could be dangerous. Sure. And that was an, an excellent adaptive um, cultural adaptation for a stable climate. And now, in a climate that is that is rapidly shifting, um, effectively that calls into question everything. At, at, you know, at every level, how do we order? How do we? What does agriculture look like? How do we order our society in the face of these changes? Yeah. How do we deal with you know urban areas that are going to disappear? Uh, and so as a young person, as a teenager, when you're looking at this, you're go- you, the tendency is, okay, this is too hard. I'm just going to throw my hands up and go, screw it. It doesn't matter. No matter what I learn, do, nothing is going to matter. And so I'm just going to give up. That's and I feel like that's sort of where a lot of teenagers are. And, and the way that manifests itself on a daily basis in the classroom is in in terms of scholarship why should i work so hard and hurt <laughs> my brain you know and struggle when struggle is painful yeah and um and to no end well i guess that's really the, a big question um you know is um you know what is what is the point um not just of education or, you know, developing a certain set of skills inside, you know, an educational paradigm, but what is, um, you know, the point to doing anything at all, um, you know, if the paradigm that I'm operating in has, you know, 
um, no one wins uh, at the end of it. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly, I can, I can completely understand how if what you grew up in was this, you know, effectively more and more obvious, these more and more obvious changes to the climate uh, and the, you know, sort of the, the ramifications thereof are more, you know, shown more and more on in me, in media and what have you. Um, and yet you feel like nothing is happening. Nothing is changing. The entrenched system is, is, uh, too powerful. Um, uh, I think there is this, this tendency to just sort of, you know, put your hands up and go, Oh, well, screw it. I'm just gonna, I'm going to just descend into, uh, sensuous pleasures, <laughs> so, which, which, you know, <laughs> might not be a bad way to go. If you think about it, uh, eat, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Right. Exactly. I think that's the old, uh, exactly. Uh, exactly. Greek epithet. And so how do you, I mean, as an educator, I think it's, that's a, that's a powerful drug. Sure. And how do you go about saying, wait, 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 no, that's not how it works. Even so, if that, even if everything is changing rapidly and, the um, you know the likely outcome for much of humanity is is poor yeah. in the face of these changes. You just happen to be in you in the particular happen to be one of the most for, in one of the most fortunate um, situations, and therefore paradoxically, yeah. your life could be be get a, be quite good, and mm. and that if you put some effort and, and energy into you know, academic struggle, and um, uh, you may find that you, you not you know you not only you personally might have a really good life, but that you could have a massive effect on how societies are ordered in a way such that these you know climate change effects may not be as dire as they could have been if you know intelligent well well prepared individuals start to get involved and to reorder societies in a way that would be more equitable more um more taking into account the the climate realities uh, and 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 so that's what i try to work with my students is to say this is kind of never before in the history of the human race has there been a, a global enemy you know, it happens to be ourselves, but it's it's a clear enemy. There's there's no question as to what needs, to, what what we need to do, and so the only question is where do you plug in? And and that's a as an organizing principle for a young person. You know, when you're like, oh, you don't have to make any choices about what you do for a living because those choices are made for you. You must be the vanguard of the change that needs to happen in the face of these this the the climate changes and therefore the, you know because choice is often stressful especially to teenagers to take away some choice and to give them an organizing principle for their life is what i strived to do as a teacher and um with with hard to say what 
what kind of success? What What is that organizing principle? Organizing principle is you must choose to work on this problem. Interesting. So um, how, uh, in your mind, how were students in the last, let's say, five to ten years, I mean, how were they introduced to this sort of um, existential problem? Well, I think they're introduced to it on any number of levels, right? But I mean, yeah, but in, in terms of a, a way that would uh, um, give a kind of acute anxiety, the kind of acute anxiety that you're talking about, you know, where they just sort of, uh, the, the, way, the way you're describing it to me, I mean, you use the word like nihilism, you're talking yeah. about how they're not pursuing certain things because of this awareness of this great enemy who, who may be ourselves. That sounds very intense. Um, like the... Um, the uh, I've there's so many questions that have come to mind and it's hard to explore them all at once. But like, um, I always when I my my perception of watershed and I could be way off base, but my perception of watershed was that it offered to a pretty diverse for this area a pretty diverse group of kids um, who were there for a variety of reasons, not just academic, but um, a whole host of reasons. Um, it offered them a first rate education. Um, there was a, uh, there's a core commitment at the heart of that school to the question of climate change or the problem of climate change. And so that kind of whatever else they were doing there, that was kind of a thrust of the school to, um, give them that clear picture about what's happening with regard to climate change and what they could possibly do about it. And one of the questions, um, that comes to mind or that came to mind even from before, but even now is, you know, what is the, what is the, um, moral responsibility of, um, handing this problem over to children? I mean, these are children, uh, in a, a way that doesn't collapse their, you know, incentive or their reward system. <laughs> right. No, I, I think that's a really important, it's an important question and one that we sort of always struggle with at Watershed. Yeah. How do you, how do you, you know, put lipstick on a pig in a way that is palatable? Yeah. And, um, I think that, uh, Regardless of how we introduce the students or, um, you know, present the problem to them in the school setting, in the modern media age, it's almost irrelevant what we do in some ways because the the wider message, I mean, the fact that Greta Thunberg is so known known and, you know, influential... Mm is um you know no matter what you were to teach or say in school that message is getting across to students in a way and you know i'd look at greta thunberg and think well this is you know you look at her and you go this is the kind of um activism and 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 uh and powerful engagement that uh is if I was a teenager, I would look at that and go, this is cool. I want to be part of this. Sure. That that now I have an organizing principle, to something to, you know, get hold of 
And um, one of the things that I tried to say to my students is, um, and ask them to watch, I, I can't remember the name of the movie, but it's with the Italian um, comedian. And basically, I, th- I think it's a good life. It's to have life is beautiful. Life is beautiful. Vita e Bella, yeah. Yeah, where where basically he's in the concentration camp yeah. and trying to show his child that you know give his child a normal life and um, you know the idea that if you think about all, all through human history during war and you know and um, upheavals of many different kinds that people still fell in love, still got oh, married, they still you know they still had a lovely, they could still have a lovely life. Uh, and and there's nothing that says that 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 in in climate change, it's very possible that what if we think carefully and plan carefully and um, you know reorder society in a, in such a way that we could be better organized to handle what's coming, that it it might be actually a much better life for for people that that and and i i think that's a very real possibility and so that's exciting and 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 i tried to to really get that across it's like if you do your job it will be better for you and your children uh and 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 so get busy yeah and and i and, and i think that's a that's an an organizing principle that is is realistic and still hopeful is um yeah so okay so there's the flip side of nihilism right that there is some kind of uh sun on the horizon so to speak you know rising sun and it's not just you know total darkness for oh well all yeah eternity. i mean i think that that's yeah exactly and i think that's where where when they see greta thunberg they're like yeah. oh this is what this looks like interesting so i mean in your mind um are we are we uh, in that sort of 12 year, uh, I know that's maybe off quoted, but are we in this kind of short cycle of, of like an intensely important period where if nothing changes, then we see, you know, kinds of mass, uh, you know, famine and drought to the point of, you know, that creates mass migration and, you know, country collapse and, and those kinds of things? Or what's, what's your, what's your timescale from your perspective? Well, I think the important thing to, to keep in mind is the residence time of CO2 in the atmosphere is hundreds and hundreds of years. So if let's just do a thought experiment, if we stopped using fossil fuels today, right? The con the, the consequences of of having burned them in the past will be will be dealing with that for a thousand a thousand years. Okay. So so that that I think that's an important thing to understand is that this is coming no matter what we do in terms of the the there there is going to be massive. Shifting um, climate. Shifting climate. The climate has already shifted and is like, and sure. will continue to shift sure. regardless of what we do. Sure. What we do now will will have 
it will basically what it will do is will it will slow down the onset of in other words the the longer we pro, the longer we po- postpone the elimination of fossil fuel burning the faster the onset is likely and the the deeper the problem becomes because of you know it, it's it's the the more the temperature ch- overall global temperature changes the bigger the consequences mm-hmm. so i think the way to think about it is no matter what we do the climate will change and it's it's it will be destabilizing for um you know billions of people sure and the longer we postpone the changes the faster that disruption comes and the worse it will be in the end so the thing i think that's important to try to get across to students is this idea that let's get busy let's we don't need to be burning fossil fuels it's the reason why we're burning fossil fuels has to do more with capitalism and greed than it does uh, any technical does, hurdles. Does China burn fossil fuels? Absolutely. and But China is rapidly, because it's a command and control economy, they've, they're have they able to, you know, if, if Xi Jinping says, um, we're going to double our, our solar capacity in five years boom it's done and we don't have that ability we're we're you know things are slower and more chaotic and require um you know that's going to happen i mean solar energy costs are are right now it's cheaper to build solar farms than it is to to build natural gas and coal-fired plants that would seem like incentive in a capitalist it system. It is incentive, but as you could, if you go back through history and look at, say, you know, whale oil, for instance, being supplanted by uh, coal, and uh, you know, every time there's there's a, lag time. Yeah, there's a. Not only is there lag time, but there's there is deep opposition sure. from the 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 the. the institutions that have made their money you know it's like coal has collapsed because of for economic reasons only i mean it it, it, you could argue that that uh that the regulatory rules around coal were very much less of a factor than just capitalistic prices like it's like huh wait a minute i've i can either buy into coal or i can buy into solar and coal is fluctuating price solar i can i I know exactly what my costs are going to be for 40 years Mm. i'm going there so that's already happened and it's happened and and often there is a a a rapid shift once the economics becomes clear sure um but if you look at um the the fossil fuel industry because the fossil fuel industry is the most profitable industry in the history of mankind and the balance sheets of of fossil fuel industries include the unused oil under the land that's in, in other words those are assets for those companies which then 
um, factor into the the stock prices. Sure. And so their incentive is to keep going, keep going. <laughs> and and it and, would make sense. Yeah. So and, and so they're and if, if you've read the Merchants of Doubt, um, they have the. the the fossil fuel industries, their own scientists, have understood for thirty years that this is that burning fossil fuels is a major problem. And instead of saying, "Okay, crap, let's let's do something, let's let's try to get our, you know, let's come up with a business model that will move us away from this," they just said, "No, let's 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 manufacture." And delay for as long as we can. We'll manufacture this doubt and this climate change denial industry, so that we don't have to change our 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 uh, business model. And they're still fighting for for that. I mean, um, the whole idea of climate change denial is is a manufactured one, manufactured by the fossil fuel industries. Well documented. So one of the things that I um I don't have a I don't have a catastrophist bone in my body. Um, you could tell me the world was ending tomorrow and you could base it off of, you know, any, any, uh, body of so-called knowledge, uh, whether it was under the hat or rubric of a science or of a religion or anything like you could, you could, it's just not within my personality profile. Um, I'm kind of an, everything's going to be all right kind of guy. And that's just that literally, that's just a psychology. I don't know why I have it, but it's just something. And so one of the issues that I've always had with a certain version of what you're saying is that, um, and I don't know whether you're saying it or not, cause you've actually presented two different pictures so far. Um, but one of the issues that I've had with other folks I've, I've heard these arguments from is this type of catastrophe, um, narrative that, uh, that if we don't do X, Y, or Z that, uh, or A, B, and C that X, Y, and Z is going to result. And, um, to me, it was always, um, I always judge things after the fact because <laughs> it's easy to be right. And so, um, whenever I hear predictions about the future, um, even in w- with well modeled, you know, science understandably i'm still i'm still interested in seeing things play out now that doesn't mean i want to be a part of the problem um but at the same time i wonder you know i wonder if there is room within the environmental movement for someone who has not a catastrophe bone in their body well, I think that you don't have to look very far to see that I think most climate scientists would would argue that they're not catastrophists. Okay. But because, you know, here's a way I might think about it is if you, let's say you heat your house with wood and you don't have any other heat source and come September, you say, you know what, I don't you know, everything's going to be fine. I don't really need to get wood in. I don't need to have a wood supply. It'll be fine. Allah will provide or whatever, you know, whatever your particular anti-catastrophist. So, but, (laughs) but your neighbor might go, dude, you're going to freeze to death. Sure. And your children are going to freeze to death. You, you, that's going to be a catastrophe. You need to get your wood in. Right. So I think that the way to think about climate change is winter comes and you better be prepared. So I mean no, so that I mean that is a total that is a total catastrophe argument though. 
It's a. I don't think it's a catastrophe argument at all. I think it's oh, just okay. it's it's a it's a it's a plan for the inevitability. It's inevitable that if you don't have wood, you will starve. Uh, you will freeze. What happens to what happens in the in these models? Because I mean, I think we're dealing with you know modeled um, futures here, right? Um, and what happens to a place like Augusta, Maine, in? 20, 30, 40, 50 years or, or more. I mean, do, do we just, you know, obviously I've heard arguments about sea level rise and seen things like that. But, you know, if you go inland a hundred miles, um, what happens to places like that? So yeah, there's winners and losers in, cli- in, 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 in the climate modeling in the sense of, um, is it beachfront property now? And we're just no, like Florida. No, I would say that, 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 you know, that, that what you're what you're dealing with is the 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 problem is the speed at which change happens sure because you, you know simple things like for example um what we have seen i think you have seen it we've all seen it that rain events in camden are episodic in nature we you know 15 years ago it was very rare to get these you know two inch rainstorms in you know in in the matter of hours okay and so what has happened is is that culverts are undersized so what what 20 years ago would have been a perfectly adequate sized culvert is no longer adequate so what happens is the uh, culvert fills in these two two inch episodic rainstorms, and then uh, the road is overtopped, and right. then um, the the road gets washed out. Sure. So, for instance, we're going to have all new um, storm drains on Route One right here in downtown Camden in the next couple of years. Okay. And so w- I went to the DOT. Um, presentation to the town and they were talking about you know replacing these culverts with similar size culverts and the the public works director says well that's not going to work because we've already filled them had to replace other culverts around town that were that were perfectly adequate in terms of I mean they weren't rusted out they were fine but they were just too small wow. they'd worked for 20 you know they were put in 20 30 years ago they worked fine until the last five years and now they're they don't work anymore they're too small sure and so are you not sizing up so that's the kind of thing we're talking about is is that it, uh, you know even it, it, in places where you might say okay well our growing season is going to get longer right which means that we have you know we're attracting more young farmers to Maine and so um you know you might say well net net in Maine we're going to end up being able to grow more food we're going to likely to have a a less um uh, you know, winters will be l- shorter, less severe, uh, although episodically there'll be more changes to temperature, which sure. has has issues in terms of, say, building codes, right? If you've got, you know, 80 degree temperature swings in a day, what does that do for longevity of buildings, for instance? Should you be thinking about designing your buildings in a different way? So all those things are, these are all, 
you know, I don't think they're catastrophists. Although those don't sound like catastrophes at all. Those sound like um, really thoughtful, moderate responses to, you know, uh, right, measurable but, change. Right. But now, 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 but now go shift your focus to say Bangladesh, okay. which um, la- recently 90% of Bangladesh was underwater. And, you know, through flooding and that's never happened before so the that's going to happen more more frequently okay. that, that that you're going to have and so at some point it's going to be untenable for bangladesh to be a populated country so those bangladeshis are going to have to go somewhere sure and whenever there's that kind of i mean we're talking about hundreds of millions of people okay. are going to have to go somewhere pretty quickly yeah you know we're talking on a decadal scale so if a hundred million people decide, you know what, we can't make our living here, where do we go? That's right. And how, who's going to accept us? Right. And what kind of societal um, changes are being made to prepare for this? How do we go about um, organizing our societies to welcome these climate refugees who are coming? There's no question, not a doubt. No one doubts that. No, no one, everybody understands that. And you could see that playing out in U.S. policy right now. The fact that we're starting to, you know, right and left, I think, you know, you, you, you don't have to, you can go back to the Obama administration and see that um, border security and deportations were ramped up during the Obama administration, same thing in the Trump administration. It won't matter who the administration is because somebody has decided, crap, we're going to have tens of millions of climate refugees at our southern border. We better start thinking about how to stop that now. That's one way to think about how you do that. No one's de- no one in policy circles is denying the idea that there's going to be massive migration due to climate change. There's, but there is a, a very real difference in the way that you might approach that, right? You might say, oh, this is, this is, this is going to happen. So either we shut w- it down, shut it down, or we say, whoa, this, like, think about all those towns in the Midwest who are, that basically have lost so many people, they've got nothing. There's no industry, but now we've got all these people that know how to do subsistence farming at a, at a, at a, at a level that we don't even imagine how that could be, but they, they have, you know, hundreds of generations of experience. What if we brought them in? Wouldn't that revitalize the entire parts of the country right. that are effectively denuded of people? Um, and, and how do we go about preparing for that in a way that is welcoming because it's coming and and it's just like the firewood analogy you know oh winter's coming i'm gonna get my firewood in that'll be good and so i think that's where the role of young people is this idea like no they're coming let's welcome them and let's let's reorder society in such a way that we do welcome them and that at the end of the day net net everybody wins so i think that it's not that's an example of you could argue that the way we're preparing now is for disaster versus let's prepare for the inevitable, which is climate migration, 
How do we do that? Well, we do that through reordering society into a more just and equitable and international global response to what's coming. That's basically um, Pope Francis's argument in Laudato Si. He Absolutely. Talk, he talks a lot about that and he talks a lot about, I mean, he focuses um, a lot on um, the rights of, you know, people um, globally, uh, you know, whatever status you want to give them, whatever moniker, you know, but uh just, you know, the fact that, you know, the stranger, uh, uh, that's a basic concept, right? The stranger, so to speak, is going to, or the close other is going to be knocking on your door here uh, pretty soon. And it's a big question about, um, you know, hospitality. Um, and what do you, uh, what do you do when someone unexpectedly, so to speak, unexpectedly knocks on your door? You know, well, yeah, and it's and and you, you need only look at the Syrian. Uh, effectively, you could make a case that the Syrian civil war is is in at least exacerbated by the, uh, the you know a millennial drought, hmm. right? So that millennial drought made an already fragile ecosystem agricultural ecosystem collapse hmm. which led to the you know 5 million refugees plus another probably 10 million internally displaced people hmm. and those 5 million people pretty much overwhelmed western europe in a in a way that was you know like existential 5 million multiply that by 100 sure and it, it seems absolutely crazy to me that you wouldn't start preparing your societies and, and, you know, everybody, all hands on board, including high school students to go, okay, well, what do we, what does this look like? Either it's going to be, you know, mass slaughter at the borders, or it's going to be a very, very, very different looking society. And I would argue that let's have a very, very different looking society because that's, I don't want to see the bodies piled up at the border. Do you? It'd be pretty. Um, it'd be a pretty uh, strange way to move forward uh, as a um, human community if you had that. I mean, it would be so. It, you know, I mean, it's almost science fiction horror. I mean, really. That, I mean, that's what it would it would feel like. You know what I mean? It, in terms of. Uh, um, well, you know, <clears throat> I was. I've been thinking about recently. Um, you know, the aftermath of the United States, and I, it's maybe a strange way to put it, but, um, after we dropped the bombs on Japan in World War II, and, uh, I was reading recently about, uh, what it did to, so to speak, the national psyche and what it, uh, did to our sense of, um, morality and, um, um, consideration of others, you know, um, because the bomb, um, obliterated all distinctions between combatant and non-combatant doctor, child, you know, pregnant mother, you know, I mean, all, all distinctions were completely crossed off of consideration. And now you're just obliterating people, um, on a mass scale. Um, and without whatever reasoning they used, you know, we've, we've all heard the various reasonings, but, uh, nonetheless, when you go on, um, when you when you make a decision to do something like that, it has um, sort of epochal, uh, uh, you know, 
scale shift and and it and um i feel like if something like that were to happen where you know you have countries that either take a more protectionist stance um they you know i was talking with a buddy this morning who lives in france you were talking about brexit as you know at least partially due to this kind of you know idea of migration and and sovereign you know national sovereignty things like that um if you um follow that course of thinking you know are 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 we going to be faced with another kind of decision that would further um alienate our us from ourselves well that is the big question isn't it and that's i think that's where like what again getting back to the idea of what do you tell young people right you tell young people that it's it's likely in your lifetimes that these radical shifts in cultures are going to have to happen in order to make way for the climate migrations that are inevitable. And so it would be good to start thinking about how to go about that because no, we've never, we've never had to deal with the scale of migration that we're going to see. And, um, you know, if you just look at the Green New Deal, for instance, a lot of the language in that is around uh, is around reshaping societies to be more equitable, because that's a precondition of being able to deal with people that are that have nothing and are migrating. Right? You're going to have to say, okay, what does it look like to share with those less fortunate who are you know streaming into your country in a way that ultimately protects the long-term you know well-being of all the people is there a sort of a an overlay between the environmental movement and the uh, and 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 i mean socialism in the sense of are they inseparable or or um well i don't i don't think the word socialism is the right one to use what i would say is the as yet unvented uh, uninvented social system i mean i'm not using it as a dirty word i just mean you know the architect of the green new deal is someone who belongs to the american socialist party you know well no he belongs to the democratic socialists which is i mean i think it's a what, makeup of, well it's a makeup what, uh, the group is a makeup of all sorts of sure interesting i folks. think what people what what i would argue that there's this you know, I'm not trying to cast dispersions with the word. <laughs> no, I, I understand. Okay. But I, just, I, I also I, I also think it's important to use are. it's important to use neutral language when you're thinking about reordering society because um, re, you know really what you like you, you you just I think that it's you start with this idea like okay, fifty million we're going to have fifty million more people in the United States probably by 2100 and the vast majority of those are going to be climate refugees so what does that look like in terms of society to make room for them and how do you go about apportioning resources in a way that is more equitable than it is now because if you don't there's liable to be you know bloodshed so, so I think really what you're, what, and, and so w- w- 
whether that's what I don't think there is a a cultural and political system that has yet been invented that will that 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 will solve these problems. And I think that's the that's the exciting part of if you're a young person now, you're like, let's rethink everything in in ways that are going to solve some of these problems you know you for for instance there's an entire um academic field called degrowth and how do you go about um basically right now the axiom in every country in the world is that growth is good right and so it's pretty clear that at some point growth is not good because there's we live on a finite world with finite resources. And so at some point you're going to have to say, you know what? We can't grow anymore because there's no, there's no more raw material. Uh, so, so then what, what, what does that look like? How does that play out? What, what does, what are the technological, cultural, um, you know, uh, economic solutions to these inevitable, this inevitable issue uh, that is going to come up, and how do you do that with the least amount of suffering for for humans? And I think that's these are all th- questions that don't have answers. But if I'm a young person, I'm looking at that, going, "Wow, this is really exciting." So the issue. So I have so many issues with <laughs> so many ideas that come to mind. So, um, to my mind, um. The question of how citizens relate in a polis, in a city, or even between uh, cities, right? To, you know, competing city states, countries now, whatever we want to, you know, it depends on your time scale, but the way that two citizens um, relate um, is an outgrowth of, um, personal ethics and to me one of the challenges that i've noticed is there's kind of a presumption of ethics um there's a presumption that children have a stable character and they um and a way of operating in the world and that Um, and that therefore out of that sort of way of operating in the world, they then can begin to hypothetically or uh, imagine new ways of relating to each other. But what I find is just almost the entirely the opposite. Um, I didn't start having a stable character (laughs) until probably my late twenties when I worked out the delayed adolescence that is so uh, widespread in our culture. You know, college has moved, has completely disintegrated into, um, you know, a training camp for delayed adolescence. And not for everyone, but for so many. And... Which I think it's been a long, it's been that way for a long time. Okay, well... I know my experience, you know, like I know what I was watching. I know what it did to me. I know, you know, and it, and the antidote to adolescence or perpetual adolescence is responsibility and a lot of it. 
and hoisting it on your back and carrying it for longer than you want to um, and uh, and doing it day in, day out. And um, I feel like these solutions or these hypothetical solutions are based on, um, again, a presumption of, of an ethic that just isn't there in the students. So it's a lot of pie in the sky and there isn't a lot of um, grounded prudential um, wisdom operating in, in, in kids. I don't know. That, does that make any sense? No, I, I think it makes sense. Although I would, I would argue that, um, oh, just got a cramp. Sorry. <laughs> oh, geez. Uh, you can stand up, stretch out. Oh, that's all right. Um, <laughs> That you know, I was having this conversation with somebody about Black Lives Matter. Okay. And that, um, you know, some of my very liberal friends have, you know, sort of lashed out against Black Lives Matter because they see it as predicated on false facts in the sense of, um, there's a lot of police shootings of white people as well as police shootings of black people, but we don't, we don't have a corresponding movement to say, say their names of the white people that are shot. And that, that this particular person said that the, um, the, that the, uh, this is a problem of police uh, it's a pl- problem of policing. It's not a race problem. That's a typical argument you hear from the right. Ex- well, it, 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 yes, but I mean t- that's where I've been hearing it all. So it's interesting you're you're seeing it right. articulated so, another, so, from another direction. Yeah. So, but what I say is, if you look around, you know, for example, I biked all through Vermont. I did a ten-day bike trip by myself, and there are Black Lives Matter signs everywhere. Yeah, for sure. In every town, in everywhere in Vermont, and my guess is that those those people are not keyed into the core message that, and and they're not paying attention to the activists and the founders and the message, the very careful message, which is the police are racist. There, I'm. This is my conjecture: is that the vast majority of people, if they knew exactly the details of like who the Black Lives Matters founders were and their what they say and their you know their particular strategy, they might go, I don't like that. Yet they still have this. They're they're they've got they're they're willing to put a sign in their yard saying, I see a problem. You know uh, that that there's a problem, and it, it revolves around the color of your skin. And so, the radical is important. You need somebody on the ragged radical edge in order for the ideas to start to percolate into the rest of the world. That's how things shift. And so, I think that I I disagree with you in the sense that I think that young people are the ones that are sort of on the radical end of Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, LGBTQ rights, climate change, um, you know, anti-fossil fuel. And it may not be 
they may not have the the wisdom and the wherewithal to like see like see the solution but what they have is the the boundless energy to move things and and how they settle out is going to require you know adult supervision and you know maturity and all that stuff but yeah. there there's something to be said for the things often start with the youth and i think we're seeing that yeah uh I don't know. I don't know where it comes from with me, but I uh, maybe maybe I do actually. But uh, the youth are easy prey. Yeah, we've had this conversation before. The youth are easy prey to to um, you know you can pretty much get a bunch of kids uh, depending on your educational environment to think pretty much anything. Well, I disagree with that because really? because if that were true, I mean, if that were true, yeah, then you could argue that um, that the 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 political right in this country would have spent a lot of time and energy working with the youth to inculcate them with the ideas that they have. You, you don't think that happens? I think it does happen, but oh. I don't think it's been very successful. I and, mean, the, and I think well. that ver, ver, the very what we're seeing in um, the the right is that they understand that there is no hope for them electorally so they 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 understand that demographically and in the in the realm of ideas they're losing because the youth is shifting and and becoming more communitarian more you know um less interested in politics of division and um you know less interested in the myopic sort of you know nationalistic if it was easy to manipulate youth, you could they they would have they would have done it, and then we would have had you know sort of this continual stasis of one side inculcating their youth, the other side inculcating their youth. I don't think that's true. I think that there are some ideas that that don't resonate because they're not there. There you know there's something to be said that, that you know that I think young people are able to kind of see things a little bit they have just less they have less um material interest in in some of these solutions or lack of solu- you know the stasis yeah and interesting so, yeah yeah i i uh i maybe it's just a philosophical disagreement too i mean i had i had this experience where you know my daughter was going to a school i don't know if i shared this with you or not maybe i Maybe I did. I don't know. My daughter at five at the time, five year old uh, girl, happy go lucky, you know, hard on his sleeve kind of. She was going to a school, and um, climate change was a big part of the curriculum, and um, or it became so. It wasn't at the beginning, and uh, anyways, she um, by the end of a two or three week session um, of this, she was you know yelling at neighbors um, to to uh stop mowing their lawns because it was a you know gas burning engine and it was going to you know murder the planet and um you know that's a pretty uh intense thing for a five-year-old to say um and uh and one of the conversations that i had with the head of school was you know um well she's five um, and, uh, she doesn't even know, you know, how to get along with her brother. <laughs> and, 
And, uh, and again, that would be a personal ethic, right? She's still working out the complexities of interfamily relationships <laughs> and, um, because she's five and that's completely understandable. Um, and yet we're asking her to imbibe, a um, a global catechism of, of sorts that involves so much complexity, um, and not just a religious fervor, but so much, um, nuance in terms of, um, understanding personal acceptance, personal maturity, personal psychological maturity, um, that, you know, eventually, I mean, I just made the decision after a year of this to say, well, I think we fundamentally disagree about the nature of the human psyche and, um, and the level, um, at which one introduces ideas without any requisite, um, development. Fair personal, enough. Personal development. Yeah, fair I mean, enough. that's, a, that's an argument as a dad. So, I mean, I, I, right. That, no. And I, and, and yeah, I, I mean, clearly these are, these are, Issues that need to be thought of, worked out. How do you? you but know, I mean, what, a five-year-old's easy prey. Okay, a five-year-old is easy prey. Well, you can get yeah, a five. I think year, that's, you could raise a five-year-old in any religion, or without one. Yeah. Or with any cause. Yes. And you could get them. You know, the kids. Uh, right, but you. But by the very same token, yeah. you know, you could go to a different school. Right. That 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 uh, that says, uh, you know, Jesus Christ is your personal savior. Sure. And so, I mean. At some point, you're like, that's a given. A school, any school, is going to impart an ethic to a student. That's a that's and an a, absolute and a, and given. a worldview and, and, and a worldview. And and, and, and right. so my feeling is, right. you could argue that yeah, I want more children to, to look like this. I want more children to be to to be inculcated into a worldview that reflects reality than one that doesn't so i'm perfectly happy to to advocate for the worldview that is in line with the scientific consensus than one that it that is magical thinking i mean i guess that's that's the the way i look at it is this is grounded in reality versus other ways of thinking which are not well so whether or not we i mean i'm not trying to argue against what you're describing as reality yeah i am trying to sort of get into it a little bit yeah. and say you know whether or not you know i'm not going to spend my life devoted to um the sci scientific exploration on this topic like yeah that's just not my area of interest it never was sure so I'm not going back for a master's in you don't you know, need environmental. One. Well, but yeah. you know what I mean? Like if, well, if I, if I were really going to get into the topic, I would really have to do some, you know, thinking about it. But my point is, my, I mean, my interests are primarily, honestly, about um, human development um, on an individual basis and then how those individuals commune and, and, and move forward. And the paradigm that I use is virtue ethics and, you know, um, excellent behavior right? Excellent action, excellence in action yeah. in whatever domain we're talking about. And some of the re response or reactions that I have to a way of, um, communicating these ideas is, is just, okay. So how do we operate in the most excellent fashion while, while we're doing this and, um, and not just set 
kids up so that they they're trying to pick up a burden that's too heavy for them. I agree with you. I I don't know what the ultimate answer is. Yeah. But I would always side on err on the side of you know err on the side of more information than less. Well, but that goes so that goes back to that original point that you made though, right? That in in light of you said two things at the beginning, in light of climate change and in light of this sort of information age that we are in, yeah. that it can lead to this kind of nihilism. Absolutely. And 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 so that's I think that that the goal or the go, that what education education and educators are going to have to struggle with in yeah. the coming decades is how do you present these stark facts in a way that leads to excellent action right. as opposed to nihilism and that is you know that's a work in progress in one of my uh, in one of my magical uh, uh, thinking tomes uh, that I have on my bookshelf at home uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas talks about um, where one, one area where the virtue of knowledge because in the medieval system knowledge is actually a virtue um, one of the ways that knowledge can go wrong is in something uh, called vain curiosity or vain knowledge or um, and uh, that's that is sort of actually kind of what you're describing actually it's when you for whatever reason you have access to this knowledge that that basically shuts you down it doesn't do anything for your state in life um and it and it overrides um it overrides the emotions it overrides uh it even overrides the imagination it can cloud your memory it can do all these kinds of things and um, so the medievals were very, um, very careful to, you know, not, I mean, th- this was a great age of, of pioneering knowledge uh, from all sorts of sources and cultures, right? Aquinas had access to um, the Arabic world for the first time, you know, for the first time in the West for, you know, a thousand years or something like that. And, um, and so he had access to, um, Aristotle through the through the Arab world and so they you know they were constantly mining new forms of knowledge but one of the things that they talked about was this notion of of, of, a, of a knowledge and it, and it doesn't mean that you never arrive at the knowledge it doesn't mean you stop exploring the thing it's just the way you engage in order to um, make it a part of you so that you can make progress as opposed to a way that yeah i don't think we're doing it right don't get me wrong i don't think we're doing it right right uh but that's why i've been harping on it so much because it's that's like an interesting thing to me but 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 i i don't think that you know it's like just because we haven't figured out how to do it right doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing it like it it requires experimentation right in other words if we did nothing that would be harmful for sure so i think it's better to err on the side of okay so we're going to there's going to be some nihilism and there's going to be some you know but there's also a massive and this is uh, the 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 silver lining is that there's no one in the high school teaching business in the last 30 years has seen the kind of civic engagement that they see in their students now. This is a new phenomenon in the 30 years, is that students are 
absolutely be want to want to be engaged and part of real solutions. And so that I think is is truly hopeful sign. Now, there may be for every one of those students that's gotten engaged, there's another student who's checked out. Sure. So, I mean, and that I think is where where we as a, you know, teachers and educators and a society, we need to we need to make sure that ratio goes up on the side of, you know, active, engaged, excellent actors in the world. That that proportion goes up vis-a-vis the the, the people who are like, ah, this is too daunting. I, I, I give up. And 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 I think that that's where that's where the work is. And hopefully people will figure out how to do that. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a very interesting, I mean, it's a very interesting, uh, you know, set of problems as you describe it. And, and, uh, and one that, you know, you probably could develop a whole paradigm of, um, you know, it, it would probably have to involve some kind of, um, you know, good psychological model. In sure. A, you know, in, in in some sense, I mean, again, and I think there is work. There's a lot of work being done on that. I mean, yeah. I think Janet, who taught the climate change class at Watershed for oh, right. for years, first and foremost in her mind was how do we do this in such a way that it doesn't there's the the it doesn't the psychic pain doesn't overwhelm. Is that something in your own personal experience and coming to understand the things the way you do? I mean, is that something that you had to wrestle with for yourself? I don't do psychic pain. I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, what you I mean, mean is, feel it? <laughs> what I, 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 what I mean is, no, I don't feel it. Oh, okay. I, I'm, I'm a rational thinker and, and emotions are, are so far down the list of the way I process the world. Concern. That, that to me, it's like, show me the, show me the science. Okay. And that's all that matters, and the rest of it is is barely interesting. And I know that that's not true for many people. For sure. And so that you have to take that into account, that, that most people do not work based on facts. Most people need a story, and that story needs to have all the right, you know, it needs to have the particular, and it needs to have characters that are well fleshed out, and any... It needs to have a, you know, maybe a happy ending and, you know, <laughs> it, need, it needs all kinds of things. Even if it's the noble lie. I've right? never needed that. I've never needed that, uh, which has been a, you know, a lifelong um, uh, handicap and superpower. Sure. For sure. Um, I, I was interviewing uh, or talking to uh, a couple po- folks uh, who are running for office uh, here in the area. So I spoke with... Um, Valley Geiger, sure, and uh, her opponent there, um, Michael Mullins. Mullen, yeah, and then I haven't gotten a chance to speak with Dave Miramont yet, but I spoke with his opponent, uh, Gordon Page. Yeah, and you know we talked all about politics and all these things. But one of the questions that I had for them because it kept coming up was, um, you know, w- what is the source of character precisely within the frame that you're speaking about it right now, where you know people need stories. We don't have a myth anymore um, unless you include in the myth, you know, consumerism and YouTube (laughs) or, you know, Facebook, that kind of thing. Like that's our myth now is sort of engagement in social media um, and buying things on Amazon, you know. Um, But 
but more realistically, uh, you know, America was founded on some pretty intense myths and, um, and in, in hair and brought with it from, you know, Europe, it brought with it a lot of mythology and we don't, uh, we've basically moved away from that as a culture. And, um, so one of my questions around all these things like black lives matter and, and everything that's come out of it was, you know, what is, what is our, what is our story at this point? And, um, I, I do think you need, do need some kind of cultural myth in order to have a cultural character. Yeah. And, and I think that what I believe will eventually come out of social, the social media experiment will be, um, and I think in a very good way is a continued, uh, blurring of boundaries and borders around the world. And, you know, a much more, you know, young people, I certainly know f- from my son who's studying in in Holland um, and traveled all over Turkey and Armenia and Azerbaijan and everywhere he can get, get, get to. His whole goal is I don't see myself as an American. Mm. I see myself as a human. Okay. And I think that, th- that that's a better myth. The myth of we're all in this together. Climate change is a unifying cause. Um, Laudato Si says the same thing, right? It's a, it's, we should be thinking about our shared humanity on this planet as opposed to our national, nationality. And I think the myth of the United States, the massively harmful myth of the United States since its founding, the idea that we're number one, we're better than everybody. We have some, you know, some, you know, Manif- ex- manifest destiny is what they call exceptional, it. Exceptional, you know, exceptional uh, value beyond everyone else has been de- a devastating myth. And so the sooner we get rid of it, the better. And and to be replaced by a much more inclusive myth, myth which is we are all in this together. There is an existential crisis that befalls the the globe and if we get together we can fix we can we can we can not only deal with it but we can deal with it in a way that for more people it's they their lives have become meaningfully better because we share so does that involve like um conglomerations of of um you know uh I don't know, nation states. Who knows? I have no idea. I, I can't imagine Pre- the mechanism. President of the world. Yeah, I can't of. imagine the mechanism given given how how human humans are absolutely hardwired to fear the other. Yeah, that's uh that's an interesting um you know, that's an interesting idea is, uh, I think you've talked about it before, but uh, of the notion of tribalism. Yeah. And, you know, uh what constitutes a tribe um and uh i think it's fairly safe to say that at least one thing that constitutes a tribe is a shared language and it's a shared um you know a shared language that the other tribe doesn't speak you know maybe the same way yeah they don't mean the same things yeah they don't and uh, and that sort of 
that is one factor that defines a people. And, um, and so, you know, I don't know if, uh, yeah, but I could, I would argue that, that, you know, sharing the language doesn't, doesn't mean that, that uh, like I would, I would argue that, you know, we've got two tribes in the United States. 100%. We've got, you well, know, we've got the Trump tribe least, and everybody yeah. else. And, sure. and, um, you know, so we speak the same language, but we don't share the same values. We don't have the same worldview. That would probably be part, I mean, I, I'm using language pretty loosely here, but yeah, yeah, that would be probably part of the notion of language would be that, um, that language involves, um, you know, a sense of meaning and, and a sense of, like you say, shared value. You know, it's not just a question of, um, yeah, it's not just a question of, you know, particular set of words. I mean, you see it on Facebook all the time. Actually yesterday would be a perfect example. Um, I, uh, I, I, I have about 1500 people on Facebook that I'm friends with that I uh, added to my friend list just by clicking friend yeah. over and over and over again. And, um, and I have probably had a thousand other people that I del- had deliberately friended over the years. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I have, I'm friends with people that I have some of whom I've never met in my entire yeah. life. And I did it as a experiment just to see and to kind of open my eyes. And, um, anyway, all these new friends, they were posting and it was interesting to see who posted what yesterday. Some yeah. people posted, uh, um, happy Columbus day. Yeah. And some people posted happy indigenous people's day. Yeah. And, and then the responses underneath, you know, um, you and, pretty quickly realize who, what tribe people belong to. Well, they're right. signaling their tribal affinity. They are. Or, you know, uh, someone said, Oh, I was going to hand in my ballot yesterday, but it was Columbus day, but they were flipping it. You know what I mean? So, uh, you know, now Columbus day is a swear word in the other tribe. Yeah. <laughs> and right. so, um, yeah. So anyway, it's a it's a it's a real interesting thing. So yes, obviously we both speak. You know, we all speak English, but what are we really signaling? Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't have the answer to the the question of how do we go about unifying as humanity. I don't have those. But answers. it seems to be part and parcel of. It seems to be like a necessary component to your solution to climate change. That is to say, without Absolutely. it, absolutely. Without it, you you're sort of forecasting m- murder at the border. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I don't. Uh, I mean, again, these are. This is the first time humans have had. You know, you think about think about um, the the Greek city states fighting against each other over and over and over and over again. You know, speaking the same language, fighting, 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 until. There's an exterior enemy, in which case they all get together. Right. And so, what? What we, I think what we're what is slowly dawning, especially on young people, is the idea like, oh, right, we have a global enemy. The tw- oh, sorry, and, and and you could argue, you know, you can you can personify the enemy, you know, you can do whatever you want, but it's like, okay, this is the first time that we 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 have faced a, a planetary a threat that is planetary in nature which will require a planetary response how do you do that i have no idea so uh, i i talked to josh garrettson a few weeks ago do you know josh sure okay josh and i were uh, high school classmates for a little while but uh, anyway he made a horror movie yes the monster of that movie was climate change yeah um uh, so to speak that was the monster behind the monster anyway yeah 
and um you know so he's he's exploring you know the 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 id and it's you know and it's fears and it's yeah. uh um and i think you know if 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 the uh if climate change looms large enough in the cultural context i mean i think we'll probably see more kind of artistic responses to that one hopes that that i mean it's going to require and this is something that i also said to my students just like i have no idea how you're going to be part of the solution hmm. like those of you who are artists you're going to be part of the solution by doing art interesting and those of you who are scientists are going to do be part of the solution by doing science those of you who are you know um interested in in government and policy are going to be that's your but it's like it's going to take everybody thinking about how to do this because nobody knows how to do it it's mm. a whole new problem mm. which again is what's so exciting about it yeah What's the role of, of scientific consensus for you in terms of the reality of climate change? Like how important is that for you? What do you, so what's, I'll just ask a question back of you. That's fine. What's the importance of scientific consensus on gravity? I mean, it whether or not we understood it, we'd still be jumping. But I mean, in terms of, you mean in terms of like launching a spaceship or what do you mean? What I mean is, is that there is no, like, no, we have it's we, a paradigm of gravity we, is a paradigm of understanding you know like the rules around gravity and the formulas and, and the, the yeah. predictability um you know getting gravity right in terms of uh, of a, a calculation yeah what is it 9.81 yeah, yeah. per uh you know that helps us uh you know launch missiles yes right i mean right okay. so so what i would say is that there's about the same amount of scientific consensus around climate change as there is around gravity but i mean it does that help um does that help us uh navigate the future absolutely because because the th you know climate ch the understanding of how co2 impacts global temperature is about 200 years old uh this is this has been again there is there is no debate in the scientific world about climate change. So you think everything that is uh, would create a counter narrative would just be a manufactured counter narrative? It is, and that's well documented. Interesting. Well, okay. well, well documented. Okay. Okay. And if you want to read about that, I highly recommend the book Merchants of Doubt. And so, um, and again, so just to just to clarify, and uh, we can moderate the word socialism without some other word, but the solution just to get it clear is uh to climate change unless we want murder at the border in your mind is some kind of um open government policy for the refugees of climate change yes it, it, it just without without any need for explaining i mean that is literally what's going to happen I, the, the, I mean i think those are your two <laughs> You're too. I mean, if you look at this is the razor's edge. Yeah, if you look at at at, at um, Europe right mm -hmm, now, mm -hmm. and you could see that what they've decided yeah. to do, and if you all you need to do is go and see how much border fencing has gone up in 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 Europe in the last five years. Basically, they've decided no, we'll just machine gun them at the at the border. Sure. Like, that's what we've decided. This is how it's going to go. We're not sharing. We're not going to let anybody in. We'll just kill them all. 
and that's what we're we're basically trying to do here we're you know we're going to build border fencing where we can't and and where we can't we're going to let them die in the desert and what and what about all we can do is to say all right you know what how about we we give the the um, Mexicans a lot of money so that they build walls down in Guatemala. So we, you know, we have another level, layer of defense to keep these migrants from coming. They're coming. What are you going to do? And the idea that you could secure your borders with, for instance, um, there's a a, a um, scholar out of University of Washington who came to the Camden Conference a couple of years ago on the politics of food and water. Okay. And he did a pretty in-depth study of how climate change will affect the Indian subcontinent because um, already the glaciers are retreating in the Himalayas. The, the Ganges River is basically all glacier-fed. The Ganges River was likely to be completely gone by 2100. And so... What his modeling, and again, you could argue, are you off by a factor of a hundred percent or five percent, or you know, that's all. There's uncertainty, and all these models have uncertainty ranges. Sure. Um, but his conjecture is, by the year twenty one hundred, one billion people from the Indian continent will have died directly as a result of climate change, and two billion will have moved. So now you think about that. Two billion people moving in 80 years. What that means, obviously, you know, could vary very drastically. Well, sure. But but at the end of the day, you know, let's say that it starts as a trickle and, and uh, you know, as the, uh, you know, you see that the collapse of agriculture in the Ganges region has already started. Mm-hmm. If you look at um, suicides by, by Indian farmers in the region they've skyrocketed Hmm. um so you know say it starts out with a couple hundred thousand this year next year it doubles in five years it's quadrupled you know it doesn't take long to get to a million right and then 10 million so i just and if five million just about collapsed western europe what does 10 million look like every year? Mm. And then 20 million. So what I'm saying is you better come up with a solution. They are coming. Climb, climb, there will be the biggest movement of humanity in the history of the world in the next 80 years. What are you going to do about it? Interesting. It's a fact. Yeah. So, and I think this is the part that people are having a hard time getting their mind around is, okay, if it's a fact that a hundred, you know, uh, that, that, three billion people around the world are going to be on the move. What does that look like for existing national structures or regional alliances or, you know, what does that look like? And I don't think there's been enough thought or work given to that. Really what the solution, the, 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 the solution at to date is, well, we'll just keep them out. I I like to have the picture in my mind or speak about the picture in my mind of the piles of dead bodies at the border. I think that's a helpful heuristic. It's like, well, if you're not going to let them in, they're going to pile up at the border 
and you're and at some point they're going to be so their pile of dead people is going to be so high that they're just going to climb over the fence and you're going to have to keep shooting them is that what you want interesting because if you don't want that you better start preparing something else now are there are there models out there that you like that um, propose solutions i mean are there particular you know governmental models or you know well i think that i think the german model was a pretty good one for but you know how how do you it's likely to you know these kind of if five million pretty much overwhelmed western europe even with a generous you know generous model that where the germans took in an awful lot of uh refugees Mm. Uh, I think that there's something to be learned from what they did and how they did it. And, and you could probably start there and then think about scale. How do you scale this up a hundred X? And I just think that we need to start having that dialogue because I think there, there's got to be solutions. I mean, there's got are, to be. Are, are Russia and China interested in, in uh, accepting refugees? Uh, I don't know. Interesting. I mean, I is this know. a is this a Western problem because of our of our Christian heritage, or is this a global problem that China and Russia would also have to? I think it's a global problem. But I'm yeah, I because just, I mean, you think about you know where I mean? where are the where are the the Indian subcontinent refugees going? Right, they're not going to the United States. I mean, that would be a big journey for sure. Yeah, I mean, that you might get a trickle of them at the upper economic end that end up in the United States, but the vast majority of them are going to be fanning out into the Asian world. And that's going to have profound ramifications for China Mm. and Russia. Mm. And, um, you know, how do you do that? I, I just don't think there's enough work being done around the climate migration. Cause that's a given. There's no scientists who disputes you know, in other words, in the United States, uh, the Southwest will be uninhabitable by 2100. Okay. Okay. No water. Uh, you know, no ability to grow crops. D- you know, temperatures that are too hot to for people to live and work. It's already started, right? Migrant workers are dying in the you know when you get to 120 degrees you can't you know it, it you you'll die so we're going to have internal migration internally di- displaced people also sure so and and i think that it's i think what you're what you're really seeing and, and these are if you go to the us government's own climate modeling it's all over there I mean, it's very clear. They're like, here, you want to see what the average soil temperature is in Arizona by 2100? Boom. Here it is. Yeah. And here's the uncertainty range. We don't know. Like, the low end of the uncertainty range is pretty tight. There's very short error bars on the low end. In other words, we're, we're almost 100% sure that the temperatures will be raised by X. Sure. But on the upper end, the error bars are huge. Meaning, well, it's going to be, we're pretty sure it's going to be at least this, but it's very possible that it could be anywhere. It could be much, much higher or a little bit higher. We just don't know. 
but we're pretty clear on the low end. So are we all citizens of Canada now? Like, I mean, does it, the whole thing just shift up? Well, I think it, it doesn't just shift up because you've got these regions, like, for example, you know, the, the Southwest will, though that population will move. Hmm. Where they go, hard to say. Hmm. Um, and, um, you know, very, it, it's like, it's, this isn't controversial, right? Because, for example, arborists in the United States understand that by 2100 we're going to be one or two zones to the south in other words we're going to have the climate of connecticut by 2100 or 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 potentially new jersey by 2100 which means when a tree dies we're going to replace it with a tree that is that is in the New Jersey climate zone because that's what's liable to survive. The tree that's in, if we replace the tree with what it, what it was, it's going to, it's not going to make it. And, and you know, that's Republican and Democrat, no matter what. It's like, if you're an arborist, you're like, Oh yeah, we've got to replace the trees so that they're, you know, going to be able to sustain the change in temperature. So this is, um, it's been an interesting like last four years, well, almost four years um, with the Trump administration. Obviously, one of the things that he did was he pulled us out of the Paris Climate Accords, which were goal, you know, goals, right? I mean, I think they were agreements and goals. And, um, and, uh, and there hasn't been much of any real talk about climate change um, in terms of the national conversation about it in the last, because I probably to a great degree because of who's president right now. Um, obviously, you know, the counter narrative would be, you know, elect Joe Biden. Let's have this conversation again. Um, and uh, why do you think it is so split? Do you think it is just a, a commitment to older forms of, um, of, of money making that it's, that it's a, sort of split on part party lines well, or I think that that when you when it, when you look at the Trump administration uh, and and the followers of Trump th- this is a long strain in American history of anti-science anti-intellectualism okay and so basically all you need to do is look at their covid the way they go about basically denying you know epidemiological science like they're just willing it to not, they're like, oh, that we don't believe that it, science is correct. You're just wrong. Mm. And so that seems to be a, a you know, that's a, a long history of that in the United States, a, a, a horrible, you know, horribly detrimental one. Anti-science, anti-intellectual thinking gets people killed and we're living it. And so, and I think that, you know, there's just a certain anti, like, I just want to do, I hate those intellectuals and I want to do, I just want them to lose. Interesting. And, and, and so if they say black, I'm going to say white because I can, you know, I'm going to dismantle Obama era regulations around, around, um, you know, fuel standards just because I can I have the power now and I'm gonna if they thought that was a good idea I'm gonna do the opposite for spite 
And that seems like a, a crazy way to order your life. And I'm guardedly optimistic that we will get back to, you know, you talk about excellent action. We'll get back to, you know, civil servants and leaders of, of, of institutions, governmental institutions that are actually science-based, who are, are interested in trying to craft policies and solutions that are based on reality, which is going to be a difficult thing when you've got, you know, a propaganda arm as powerful as OAN and Fox News, which are basically saying that, 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 that they're manufacturing their own facts. There's an, a, a fantastic uh, podcast by, uh, I'm pretty sure it's called Why Is This Happening with Chris Hedges. You ever, Chris Hayes, you ever listen to that? He has these really very interesting authors and thinkers on. And he had an epistemologist on talking about how do we know what we know and how do we decide, you know, who do we trust with, right? Like, and very in a very real way, what you, what, what your worldview is based on who you decide is your, are your authorities. Of course. And so what's really interesting is he, he has researched this and looked at over the course of 30 years, what has the right done to manufacture this alternative reality, their alternative, not fact-based reality, and and how to make a verisimilitude of, so in other words, they started up think tanks, they started up, you know, journals, they, 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 they have their, they've basically come up with these effectively fake institutions and they've modeled themselves on the real institutions so they can say, see, we're doing science and nothing could be further from the from the truth they're basically what they're trying to do and this you, you see this often where people try to you know um you know for instance like psychological esp or something like this that there's like see it's science we've got this instrument that has you know that like well no, you don't. Your instrument doesn't work. It's not true. And why, if you if you think science is so wrong, why are you trying to bring it into the realm of science anyway? Mm. Like, if you if you think it's wrong, say it's wrong and propose some other method. They don't have anything, so they just manufacture. So that's going to be difficult to overcome. I, the whole question of authority, I mean, that's kind of at the founding of the United States, right? I mean, are the, the United States was founded on a rejection of authority, right? Well, I think it was, the was United it? States was founded on the rejection of certain authority so that other well, authorities could then... Well, it was, it was basically, I mean, we were founded on a, a kind of a you know, re- religious, uh, tolerance, um, a kind of, uh, religious, in, I like to call it religious indifferentism and, um, at getting out from the uh, authority, you know, the King of England got us out of the, uh, out from under the authority of the Pope. And now we're getting out from the authority of the new head of church, head of state, you know, the King of England. And now we're going to be free in whatever man, you know, manner we can be from authority, from anyone's authority. And there's always this been except this, our own. Well, right, and 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 yet we also fight for our freedoms from authority, even in 
even in our own cases, right? I mean, the whole history of the 20th century sure. has been a history of fighting for rights, uh, you know, for marginalized groups that didn't yeah. feel the freedom that they thought they should feel. Yeah. So there is kind of a let's get out from under the authority of spirit um, on yeah. both the left and the right, actually, yeah. uh, to our system. And then you bring in this notion of science as authority. Right. Well, which is an interesting way well, to characterize science. Right. And 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 so I as a scientist, it's it's like I'm happy for you if you can come up with a better way. Right. To understand the world around you than science. I'm all ears. Well, not just a science, but maybe I mean, isn't isn't part of the process of science also paradigm breaking? Sure. But that but. It's paradigm breaking with facts. Like, show me the facts, measurable, objective facts. Right. And if they say that my theory is incorrect, I'm going to, I'll push back and push back until there, it comes clear that, well, I can't push back anymore because you, you your facts just win. Yeah. I love, I've always loved that notion that you hit something with a hammer, you know, and crack it all away until there, you know, finally you hit something that you can't break. Yeah. And that, that's sort of a one way to do it. And that's the beauty of science is, is there's a certain amount of conservatism. Like people are like, no, I'm not going to give up my theory. No, I'm not going to give up my theory. No, I'm not going to give up my theory until some new fact shows up and you're like, okay, I give up my theory. Right. For sure. Because it's just, this one's better. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I, I don't know. So I, I was bringing that up just to, br- to to bring up the notion that, okay, so it, there is a streak of anti-authoritarianism kind of in our heritage in a way. Because, uh, be, because I wouldn't th- say anti-authoritarian. I would say oh, really? w- there's a streak of, of, of uh, anti-authority. Okay. So authoritarianism is very different from authority, right? In other sure, words- sure. The 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 police the the people that you believe, the the people that you're like okay, I am going to I've chosen to believe in scientists because they use the scientific method. I'm not going to check their work. I'm going to take what they say for granted because I I I understand the the method, and it's been shown over and over again to be the only method that we have to make progress. And so I'm going to say, yep, those are my authority figures because that, that works for me. And, um, what other authority figures are there? Well, there's, there could be a religious authorities, right? And so you could choose religious authorities. Everybody chooses their authorities because you need, you, you have to choose, you can't do all the work you yourself. You can't do all the work yourself. <laughs> and and the, the, the problem in the modern American paradigm is is that the the uh, the right wing have manufactured these ersatz authorities with a completely alternative reality that is fantastically interesting that 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 actually A, somebody could think that up and go, Oh, let's do this. And then B get to the point now where it's such a self-supporting system that people are now actually do believe the alternative facts, including the authorities. 
And so you're you're in a very dangerous place. That's that's a dangerous place to be. And you know, ultimately that's that's a a a fight that we're going to have to have and we're going to have to win. We have to beat this somehow. We have to we have to destroy this alternative universe of, you know, uh, alternative facts. I mean, just the, when you listen to some politicians where they say, "Well, we have different facts than you." Hmm. Like, no, then they're not facts. Yeah. So until we get to the point where we're back to converging on, oh, these are the facts. Now let's interpret what should we do about those. Let's do, you know, we can have a debate about what's the right way to go about fixing this or that. But to, to ha- you, you can't really have a debate if you are operating on one. You've said these are facts, which aren't. And then these are facts, which are. That doesn't work. That's interesting. So um, one of the areas, obviously, that we've all been experiencing recently is this COVID issue. And um, there has been a great deal of questions around, you know, what do we do? I mean, maybe the maybe there is a, a questioning of the, the facts, I guess. But even if we can agree on the facts, like what um, what do we do with those facts? You know, obviously different governors. And, and again, it sort of fell down the, you know, DR, the Democrat Republican lines. And um, well, not necessarily. For for instance, in Vermont, there's yeah. a R governor. Okay, but but what that R governor did in the very beginning is go, everybody's wearing masks. Right, right. We're well, just for the, wearing but for masks. The, well, that's a nice exception. But for the most part, it did kind of. I mean, Massachusetts Republican governor. Yeah. I don't know. I don't. Yeah, I but a Massachusetts I, Republican isn't really a Republican. Well, no. I think what you're t- what you're talking about is yeah. alternative. Fact-based governors versus yeah. fact-based okay, governors. Okay, so you wouldn't see it so political as... No, I would see it as either... Like, yeah. if you don't... If your authority figures are not scientists, right. you've got nothing. Hmm. And that's why we're where we are. Interesting. Interesting. Very cool. Very cool. Well, hey, it was really good to talk yeah, to you. Yeah, that was fun. I, I really appreciate it. And I, um, what are you, you going to spend your time doing in your retirement? Well, I'm already spending it. Meaning what? Um, I'm, I have a handyman business. You do? Yeah. So oh. I've been flat out. It's, I can work as much as I want. I don't what are have you to doing? advertise I, you, anything. No kidding. Yeah. I've been, I, you know, I scraped a house. Did you really? I, I built a fire pit. I rebuilt stone walls. Okay. I am working for a guy who's building a spec house. Oh, nice. Uh, I, you know, That's I great. washed windows for yeah. somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't care. So you just, you, you really are, you just transitioned into like, I just want to be hands-on useful. Yeah. Interesting. That's yeah. very cool. Yeah. Very cool. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Pete. All right. Appreciate it. Yep.